one of the reasons why personality disorder is stigmatized is because it allegedly never gets better. In other words, once you've got it, not only are you a terrible person because you're a personality disorder, but you're never going to change. Well, we've done a lot of research on this over the years and people change all the time. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes and just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset and enjoy yourselves but I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the summer specials. Peter Trier is the Professor of Community Psychiatry in the Centre for Mental Health in the Division of Experimental Medicine. Much of his recent work has been focused around personality disorders. Personality disturbance is very common, not just in psychiatric practice, and this importance has been largely unrecognised as the knowledge around this particular disorder is very poor. Many people feel very strongly about the term personality disorder, but it's a term that is misunderstood by almost everyone and needs to go. In this episode, Peter teaches us about the various different types of personality disorders, why they can be tricky to treat, and the big question as to whether we are born with our personality or it's shaped over time. So we're going to talk about borderline personality disorder, or should I say emotionally unstable personality disorder and I'd love you to first of all tell us what this is. Well unfortunately it's a a very unsatisfactory term because it's a portmanteau diagnosis. It can be used for almost anything and it hasn't got any connection with personality disorder in the way that most people understand it. Personality disorder as a general concept consists of traits as they're called or characteristics that are part of your personality and they stay there for most of your life and they're they're pretty constant. But borderline is not like that at all. It's an up and down set of symptoms and behavior with people who are uh, have strong emotional disruption and dysregulation as it's often called. And this overlaps with personality disorder, but it covers everything else. So um, just for example, I, I've often quote this because I I had an argument in the post office the other day with a, a postmistress who um, I went in it was just before the closing time on a Saturday and I put a, a parcel on the weighing machine and said, how much does it cost to send this off? And they said, the post office is closed. And I said, well, you can tell me how much it costs to send it off. There's the weight. There's the weight. No, the post office is closed. And I said, this is ridiculous. And after about two minutes, she said, if you don't go out immediately, I will phone the police. Well, my behavior then could be regarded as borderline. I was acting in a rather, rather disruptive and unhelpful manner. I think she was being very unhelpful too. So the borderline was both sides in my view. But that would be called borderline behavior, where people suddenly lose their temper and fly off the handle and then often feel bad about it afterwards. <laughs> That's borderline, but it's, it happens all the time with everybody. And um, the diagnosis as it stands now has no description of severity so anyone who behaves like this can be called borderline our new system which you'll come to actually does qualify severity but at present anyone can have borderline at any level 
And the reason why it's so unsatisfactory is that, and so bothering at the moment, is that it's grossly stigmatized because we have treatments for borderline, which I think have been overstated because they're, they're effective, but they're not exceptionally effective. But the more complicated ones require a lot of time and very few people could have access to them. Well, if you take the what the epidemiology, that's the number of people with borderline in the country, there are 600,000 of them. And these specialized treatments are only available for a very tiny minority. There are others less specialized treatments that are not given for borderline, but for given for similar conditions. And unfortunately, what happens now is that, and this is a commonplace now, if you mention that your patient is emotionally unstable, you will be rejected by most of these specialist services because they don't want people disrupting their smooth running of their groups and uh, or individual sessions. And so they write back and say, sorry, um, uh, this patient is not suitable for our service. So we have a whole set of rejections from services as well as from people who meet people in A&E departments and they behave like this and they say, oh, typical borderline, don't have anything to do with them. So we have a whole lot of, a large number of highly discontented individuals who have genuine problems. I'm not pretending that they haven't got genuine problems, but they're being diagnosed with emotional instability and really given no help. And just to give a strong example of that, I'm seeing a patient at the moment who's been totally rejected by the services that she's being looked after by because she's so emotionally unstable, they feel she's too vulnerable to be treated with anything. And I've actually had to take her on with our charity because she is being completely neglected by her service because everything which should normally regarded as suitable is being she's being rejected from because of her emotional instability so you can see how this is really extremely stigmatizing and makes people very angry and if you're already pretty and emotionally unstable you'll be even more angry when you hear the sort of account that i'm giving you so can you tell us how can you reliably diagnose someone with a personality disorder well, this can be done relatively easily. And for example, I was talking on Tuesday to a large number of trainee nurses who work as health visitors and uh, occupational nurses. So they don't know much about mental health. But I emphasize to them that all of them can identify personality problems quite easily. And they're going to come across them all the time because most people have some degree of personality difficulty or problems. And we can come to that in a bit. And the two issues are really very straightforward. The first one easier than the second. The first one is that you have problems in what is in the polysyllabic way of describing things now is it, you have problems with interpersonal social dysfunction. You have problems in your interaction with other people, which make you aggravating and aggravate others. And the second one is, and it's quite an important one, is that you don't actually recognize that this is something wrong with you and you often blame somebody else for it or feel there's nothing wrong with you at all and that other people are showing all the abnormalities that you actually have. Uh, so you have a distorted perception of yourself, the way you come over to other people. A lot of people have that and they can be coped with in some ways, but if you have interpersonal social dysfunction as well, it combines and you have a personality problem and that can be either mild, moderate or severe or it can be at a level below the level of disorder, which we call personality difficulty. Most of us have personality difficulty. One of the reasons I um, stress this 
is that actually if you look at the data, which are not excellent, they show that about 80% of the population have some problems with personality expression. In other words, only a minority have normal personalities with no difficulties. And I know I make a joke out of this, but it is not <laughs> true, is that the people that you ignore in social occasions because they're so boring and predictable and can say exactly the things you know they're going to say before you even ask them and they never change, these are the ones who should be stigmatized, not the ones with personality problems who actually constitute the majority. <laughs> so personality difficulty is the most common, by far the most common, and they're people who have personality problems in certain settings. So I come over very well to you at the moment because I'm in a friendly environment and you're asking me nice questions. But if, in fact, I was in a, an interview with an authority figure and I got annoyed with them, I could behave very badly. Or if I felt very upset about something, I may blurt out something inappropriately and people say, God gracious me, you didn't say that, did you? Uh, in other words, I'm a bit impulsive in my reaction to things. And these are my personality difficulties, but they only occur in certain situations. So when people say, I can't stand that fellow Tyree, such a difficult person. Oh, really? I think he's quite charming. I really got on very well with him. Ah, yes, but have you seen him in X, Y or Z situation? And that's the particular situation where the difficulty is shown. And of course, we tend to avoid those situations because we know that we don't feel comfortable in them, we avoid them. So, but well, often we're forced into them one way or another, and that's the time you may show your personality difficulty. So that includes an awful lot of people. At the other end, we have mild, moderate, severe personality disorder. Well, a very, very small percentage of the population has severe personality disorder, and they, these people are usually so disturbed and so eccentric or disordered in their personalities that they aren't actually in normal contact with people. They're in institutions of one sort or another, and that includes prisons, it includes uh, long-term mental institutions of one sort or another, or sometimes homeless hostels. So these are the people who have the very severe forms of personality disorder, and they're relatively rare. The other point I want to emphasize, and it really is worth emphasizing, is that one of the reasons why personality disorder is stigmatized is because it allegedly never gets better. In other words, once you've got it, not only are you a terrible person because you're a personality disorder, but you're never going to change. Well, we've done a lot of research on this over the years, and people change all the time. Their basic personalities don't change. Our basic personalities, our, our general traits don't change. But if, in fact, we're in the wrong sort of environment, we often behave badly. I mentioned that before with personality difficulty. But if it's a long-term environmental mismatch, we behave very badly and we actually show the personality problems. If you get the right sort of setting, you lose the disorder. You've still got your personality, but you lose the disorder because you're now in a more favorable and harmonious environment. So if I'm not mistaken, it's really the consistency of the behavior coupled with the lack of self-awareness, which is really the diagnosis for someone who can have a personality disorder as opposed to just personality difficulties. That's right. And we feel it can be diagnosed by everybody in mental health services from, from GPs to backup nurses. But when I say it can be diagnosed, it's not something you diagnose on the hoof, as it were. You need to talk to people for at least, you need to have an assessment. I, I, I feel I can assess someone in half an hour, but I'm obviously pretty used to making assessments. 
but there are various clues which help you to diagnose things. And obviously, people have got a very erratic lifestyle and have had all sorts of difficulties which are not directly related to dark illness per se. Then, in fact, um, you can begin to get a clue about personality problems. But I think I always do it in a collaborative way. So if I was talking to you and I said, well, I've noticed you had lots of different jobs in the last uh, 10 years. Why is it you keep on changing all the time? There have been difficulties. That's the sort of thing I would come into with someone who's got a lot, has a lot of different occupations or a lot of different relationships. You explore the reasons why things have gone wrong. Yeah, I can imagine. So actually, like, uh, yeah, someone who can't commit and someone who's constantly almost running away from themselves, or maybe it's a sort of a warning sign that they're not very nice to be around, therefore people shunt them out or they get bored very easily. They have a short attention span. As far as my reading is concerned on this topic, it seems that there is a lot of overlap with, say, things like ADHD, narcissism, maybe bipolar too. How easy is it to accurately diagnose someone? Well, it's a very important issue and you, which you've raised because most people with personality problems, not surprisingly, because you're dealing with a condition which is present in most of the population in some form, is that it's forgotten about because it's uh, the other things like your symptoms of the ADHD and your anorexia and your depression and anxiety, they, they seem to take precedence. They always take precedence because they're the ones that people complain of, with one exception. And again, that goes back to the exception, borderline. Borderline patients want treatment for their borderline. The average person with personality disorder doesn't want treatment. They'd be kind of happy if other people have treatment for their problems because they're, they recognize them as their head, as it were, but they aren't interested in having treatment for their own personalities. Again, that explains why borderline is not a personality disorder. But if you, in fact, have a two-stage process in which you say, well, these are your problems at the moment. These are symptoms of behavior that's bothering you. And then you look at it from the point of view, how are you in the world? How's your personality? How do you relate to people? That's a separate level of assessment, and it can be done along the, at the same time. But you have to keep it separate, and you don't actually make the diagnosis primarily of personality disorder because usually the other thing will take precedence. But the real problem with overstating the mental state problem as it were, as it's called, the thing which is bothering the person and wanting help with, is that if you forget about the personality, you actually reject a very important part of the pathology. And for example, ADHD overlaps enormously with impulsive personalities, including those with emotional instability. And you should never think of ADHD without assessing, well, what's the underlying personality problems going on there? And I think it's interesting when you look at celebrities that nowadays is that so many of them seem to have all these conditions like ADHD or autism, but they're, and they're quite happy to talk about that. What they're really saying is, in many cases, well, it's my personality that's a bit disturbed, really, and I show these various features when I'm, my personality is more disturbed, but I like to label them with these other nice mental state disorder diagnoses because everyone likes the idea of that. And we really want people to be admitting their personality problems. I mean, I want someone to stand up in the House of Commons and, and say, I apologize for that last remark I make. It was my personality disorder coming out. I think that if the uh, right honorable gentleman recognizes my personality disorder, he will realize there was no malice in my comment. I just was going over the top. So I think people ought to be saying that instead of now we're admitting that we've got MPs have admitted they've got depression, they've admitted they've got 
OCD, they're probably admitting they've got ADHD before long, but they need to admit they've got personality problems. And in the case of common personality difficulties, it's not something which is there all the time. So that's one of the points about, of emphasizing that point, say, well, this is not really me who's upsetting you. It's part of me in this particular situation. And so please make allowances. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. It's almost at the, in those situations when you let the monkey brain take over and the amygdala is going into overdrive and you're not sort of listening to your prefrontal cortex. And you do, you make these very rash statements and you subsequently re- regret them. But in the heat of the moment, those those statements or those flippant comments tend to be what comes out. And I think, as you again earlier said, it's very interesting, this distinction that you make between borderline personality disorder and emotionally unstable personality types, because I think so often we are falling into this trap of over-diagnosing people with, say, mental health issues like ADHD and OCD and, and autism, uh, when in fact, maybe it is just a, a personality disorder. Yes, and I think this is becoming far too uh, common, the sort of diagnostic babble, as I call it. I mean, in- increasingly, there's as you probably realize, that the numbers of people with charge of psychiatric disorders, including autism, has about tripled in the last 15 years. Well, that is not a genuine increase. It's because everyone is now diagnosing at a much lower level of, of uh, pathology. In my view, it's often far too low a level of pathology. In other words, you're making out that someone has got one of these conditions, and it has a big impact in in school, for example, where you can you have different schooling arrangements if you've got autism, and I've had quite a few battles with the younger people I've seen. I feel don't really have autism to any degree, and therefore can be looked after in ordinary schools. But there is this tendency to diagnose very readily and to say, "Well, this person needs special intervention," and I think this is a, a disservice to people with um personality problems because as i say we're all in the same boat with personality and we shouldn't be separated because of differences in our personality you can do it for severe mental disorders but if it's not severe then it's not appropriate it is it's a very interesting point and it's something i certainly fall victim of is over pathologizing people and individuals and their certain character traits i often get accused particularly by my parents, of pointing the finger at someone for having autism or OCD or an eating disorder, when in fact, it might just be a quirk in the in their behavior. And I also get very insulted when we over pathologize. And it is, as you say, it can be quite insulting to those of us who really suffer very deeply with things like OCD or an eating disorder, when people do tend to throw these terms around and not really understand the depths to which people sink who suffer from them. I was at a lunch the other day and someone said, oh, well, OCD is just a positive thing. I mean, we all want OCD because if you're OCD, you're a perfectionist and you like order and you like control. And I just thought, you know what? It's just not worth entering into this conversation. No, you're quite quite right. It devalues the real sufferers. That's what I find they get very upset about this, of course, is that you don't realize when I say I've got OCD that I have got OCD. I'm not just a person who has obsessional characteristics. Incidentally, we found in our own research over the course of time that obsessional characteristics in your personality tend to increase. Elderly people have more obsessional characteristics than younger people. But again, it's the personality which is changing there. And that is a genuine change. There is this tendency to be more obsessional. Not surprisingly, you get more rigid. 
rigidity is part of obsessionality, but it's not a disease, it's something which needs accommodating. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND Partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. So for you, Peter, what are the hallmarks then of someone who really is suffering and needs treatment? Well, someone who's really suffering from severe personality problems is that you'll find out, first of all, they've got no stable relationships at all. Uh, Sometimes in the case of people who have, there are these five domains attached to severity, which we haven't discussed, which are negative affectivity, which is really what borderline emotional instability is related to. There's also detachment, which is not wanting to relate to anybody. There's um, disinhibition, which is acting on impulse. There's obsessionality, which is called anencastia, where you're hyper-rigid. And there's um, dissociality, which is uh, where you're um, antisocial and often called psychopathy. These features are all present or can be all present. Either one, two or three of these domains are present. But if you take the whole range of them, if someone with a severe personality disorder, if the main features are in this, detached area. These are people who are hermits. I mean, there's uh, people with severe antisocial features that are so um, disturbed, they're they're usually in long-term prison settings. People with severe forms of negative affectivity, the people who harm themselves frequently. I had a patient I actually eventually recommended that the hospital made permanent what, in fact, they were doing temporarily, and that is that they they had a, a place in the hospital where this person stayed because she was so often harming yourself. Now, that's when, in fact, you decide you can't treat anybody. And I think that's where we sometimes give up. And uh, I know some of your questions follow-up are going to be, well, how do you treat personality disorder? Exactly. you perfect segue into my next question, Peter, which you so rightly preempt. So how yeah. do you treat personality disorder? Well, as I say, the treatments for emotional instability, people, the reason why people like to feel they've got emotionally st- unstable personality disorder at least at first, is that there are treatments available for that, but they're, and they're all very similar in the sense that they're complex psychological treatments that take some time, varying lengths of time. Some people have short ones, some other ones have longer ones. And these are, are offered a combination of group and individual treatments, and uh, they sometimes go through past trauma, which is often relevant in emotional instability. And you take all these things together, and in effect, you reinforce the positive features of personality development and they learn to cope with their emotional instability. The two things that are wrong with that, I'm not saying it is wrong with it, but the two things which are relevant there, first of all, is that there's no really good evidence that having 
an awful lot of that treatment, which originally used to be 24 months, is really much better than having 10 weeks. And secondly, that when they compare this sort of treatment with what is now called structured clinical management, which is really what I would regard as good care when you're being consistent with a patient, you're accepting they have they lose their tempers, they accept that they sometimes reject what you're saying, but you stay with them and you support them and you go through these problems and explain them, which is actually not requiring a vast amount of extra psychological skills. That is just as good in terms of outcome as the specialist treatments. So that's uh, some doubt. At the moment, I'm involved with a, a group which is actually just testing six to eight sessions of this similar treatment, just which would make it much more effective in general use in psychiatry because that would mean many more people can be treated than are treated at present. And the preliminary evidence of that is that it's pretty effective. But when you take the rest of the personality disorders, no one really wants to know. And as I said earlier on, it's the people who seek treatment are those with emotional instability. The other ones don't seek treatment because they don't want to change their personalities. And this is one of the the worries of people sometimes. That, well, you I don't want to have any treatment which is going to change the person I am. Well, you don't change the person you are. What you do in the treatments we give, which are basically combinations of environmental change in the form of what's called nidotherapy, which is named after nidus the nest, the nest being something which accommodates any shape that will go into it. So you, you just find an environment which will accommodate the strange shape, which is you, as it were. The way you do that is go through all the different aspects of the environment and see which are the most important. And for example, the person I'm seeing at the moment has been totally rejected by her service because she's considered so difficult because of emotional instability and everything else in her personality is so disordered. We've identified, this is after only eight weeks, that the main problem is related to her uncertainty about family. And what she really wants confirmation of is that her family support her and they respect her and they don't criticize or trivialize her in any way. And we're bringing all members of the family together so that they actually are unifying in helping this very difficult person over a really bad period. That's an example of not an environmental change, it's a, a personal change, a personal environmental change. You could have a personal environmental change, a social one, or a, a physical environment. But having said that, in the longer term, this person needs to leave where she's been living because she was abused dozens of times when she was younger and she lives in the same place. Every time she goes out of the house, she sees people who've abused her in the past. So in the longer term, she needs to move as well. So neither therapy there includes changing the social environment, improving her family connection. And in the longer term, it will involve changing her physical environment. And that often takes quite a lot of negotiating. And it's something which you don't do you don't say, oh, you just need a change. Sometimes it can be done, for example, in a job, for example, someone working in a large organization, you can evaluate them and say, oh, it's obvious that you don't like this particular job. You've got obsessional features. You can't work with other people because you want to be in control. Or we'll move to this area where, in fact, you have total responsibility for this area of work and you'll feel much better there, wouldn't you? Is that a sort of work job you'd like to do? That can be relatively simple. When it's a complex thing with severe mental illness, it often needs a lot more effort. So the idea behind nidotherapy is that you assess the person in a collaborative way. You don't tell them, oh, I know what's better for you. 
you've got to find out from them what in fact is really bugging them what is so unsatisfactory about their circumstances in all their forms and you say well how should we change this and obviously you have to pick on a realistic prospect to change you say all right that's our policy let's get this timetable worked out what do you want to do let's work out a six months time scale what would you like to get done in six months and then you follow that through and if there are obstacles along the way you may need to change your strategy a bit you need sometimes what I, I call environmental advocacy because people like me as professionals have to help people get over barriers because there's an awful lot of prejudice against chronic mental illness and there's a lot of prejudice against people with personality problems so often you need to have to emphasize that so for example again one of the patients we treated before is this was a lady who had a two children taken away by social services because she was an incompetent mother and when they came to pick up the last one the third one she was very angry and she attacked the social services social workers with an iron bar and then after that she was called the iron bar lady severely paranoid and was kept in a, a very highly supervised home where she had there were lots of staff and when i saw her she said look i can look after myself perfectly well i don't want everyone following me around monitoring me it makes me really angry and upset and it makes me worse and in the end we persuaded the housing association to put her into a flat where she was only seen for 15 minutes every week to make sure everything's all right and that went really well now she's the children that were taken away now come back and see her regularly and she has uh, she developed relationships with them again but the battle was there to persuade the authorities that this vicious iron bar lady was only like that because at the time because her children were being taken away which is a, a most emotive thing you can have as a mother so that's where you need the environmental advocacy someone acting on behalf of the person and often taking the risk and say well i'm prepared to take the risk that she won't attack anybody and you can blame me if it doesn't i will take responsibility for it and that requires a certain level of courage because at the moment we're very risk averse in mental health we're so scared of being criticized they avoid what are regarded as risky decisions but if you know people well you don't have that problem so in terms of nidotherapy, therapy if you were dealing with the psychopathic personality for example someone who's just been reintegrated into a community following a 10-year sentence in prison how would you reimmerse them in society and try and accommodate them in a situation where they you would be confident that their traits wouldn't come out again well you picked on a very good example there because that's one where in fact we're defective in being able to assess them and the, the problem with people with extreme levels of psychopathy i would think that psychopathy it's got two levels one is what is what often called recidivist behavior where people aren't particularly clever and they just go on committing offenses and as soon as they leave prison they go and commit them again whether it's robbery or or theft or whatever it is and then they go back in but their motives are transparent a more intelligent level of people who have um, psychopathy or their social characteristics is that they manipulate people very effectively and they can manipulate professionals as well and so when you say how do you tell whether someone is responding well have they really changed the fundamental personality doesn't change and that's uh, when i say fundamental personality doesn't change your personality traits tend not to change but the interesting thing is and it's often forgotten about is that people with the domains of dissociality psychopathy whatever you call it they start early in life 
often in childhood, where it's called conduct disorder, but they also end earlier. When I say people are worse, obsessionals get worse in older age, antisocial people get tend to get better in older age. There tends to be, and there are lots of examples of people who have been grossly antisocial when they're younger, seen famous things like the Birdman of Alcatraz, where people actually are locked up for years and they change because they lose their antisociality, as it were, as they get older. And I think we often don't accept that. We have various assessments in forensic psychiatry. We rely on what are called historical aspects. In other words, if someone has been very aggressive, active, they've done all sorts of antisocial things when they're younger, it doesn't mean that when you see them at the age of 50 that all those characteristics are still there. Most of them have gone. But you need to have a good assessment to make sure they're not fooling you. And that's really um, one of the most difficult things. And as you know, when you have the failures, when people actually go out and are on parole and everything's all right and they kill exactly the same way as they did before, that's pretty rare. But you can see that you fail to make the assessment properly in those cases. Absolutely. And say someone who's anencastic, you know, a perfectionist, likes a lot of order and routine, what would you do with them? For people like that, you need to put them in an environment where, in fact, they can practice those characteristics and not be necessarily dissuaded from them. So most important thing there is for them not to be in competition with other people or sharing other things in a way which will tend to lead to conflict. So as much as possible, you um, put them in situations where they can, they have a very clear responsibilities, they have clear function and the way they organise things. And you mentioned autism earlier on. Of course, autism is often associated with this particular trait, the desire for sameness. You must do exactly the same. And of course, you can't make everyone exactly the same, but as much as possible, you accommodate the desire for uniformity and sameness and consistency with that type of person. So they don't, they aren't coming into conflict with other people. And of course, because obsessionality can be very good, you can often put them in places where they can be remarkably effective and productive, but they probably don't have that much contact with other people. It's very interesting to me at this point because it's so different to exposure therapy, which would be administered for someone like myself with OCD, whereby you are exposing the person to the fear with a goal of having them change all that order and routine and getting over the fact that they actually need the order and the routine. So it seems to me that what you're saying is someone who has an unstable personality disorder, a severe one, which goes to the etymology of nidotherapy, you are literally having to mould their environment to them as opposed to trying to mould them to their environment. Is that correct? That's right, yes. The other aspect of emotional instability, I think it should be thought of as least as much as a mood disorder. Mood is a whole range of emotions. And I think learning to control your mood is not something of which is part of personality. We have lots of mood-controlling interventions, which I think could be used much more frequently with people with emotional instability. But because, as I say, because it's such a portmanteau diagnosis that covers everything, I mean, in many cases, you'll find aspects of emotional instability, as we found with the person I'm seeing at the moment, which, in fact, can be dealt with by nidotherapy, but the as long as the emotions don't get in the way too much. And you're essentially resigning yourself to the idea that those traits are never going to change. Therefore, one just has to accommodate them and hope that the environment helps them manage the traits. Yes. I did mention that antisocial features tend to get better as you get older. 
there's also quite a lot of evidence that even though we give most of the treatment to emotional instability, they also tend to get better as you get older as well. So even if you do nothing, you'll tend to get better from emotional instability. And I'd love to know your opinion on whether you think we're born with our personality or whether it's shaped by nature. There's been a lot of argument about that. And the data, and it's very, very prominent data, it's been shown over and over again, is that 50% of your personality is genetic. The other 50% is environmental. And obviously, if the environment has been particularly maladaptive, and this is really relevant to a lot of arguments over diagnosis. So, for example, if you've had a really deprived and abused childhood, for example, where the environment has been completely wrong when you've been growing up, you're more likely to have a disturbed personality. And in the case of borderline, there's been a lot of argument as to whether it should be called a new diagnosis, which is also out at the same time as the our new one personality disorder called this one called ICD-11, which is the 11th revision of the international classification. There's a new diagnosis called complex post-traumatic stress disorder, complex PTSD. Well, PTSD, we know, follows a rate of stress. In the case of complex PTSD, it can apply to childhood, but you get the manifestations in adult life. In other words, the trauma is behind the personality. And so, therefore, you should think you could think of it as a, a form of trauma and therefore not a form of personality. Now, that's a, in some cases a, an artificial argument because it's not as though when you're dealing with trauma that you're not dealing with personality. And when you're dealing with personality, you're not necessarily dealing with trauma. I mean, the patient I'm seeing at the moment, she's had the most awful traumatic experiences and she's now writing every single one of them down and I'm going through them with her. Again, she's controlling that. I'm not controlling it. She wants to talk about it in her time. So it's perfectly reasonable in these situations to say, we recognize you've had an awful set of environmental factors in the past. Now, don't think that every environmental aspect is going to make you worse. Our task is to find environmental factors that will make you better. So when people say, oh, well, the environment can't possibly do anything to help me. Well, of course, it's, it may have caused all sorts of problems in the past. So you can't say that it's not, not relevant. And I think what we've tended to do is regarded the environment as something which happens to us and we can't do anything about it or it's controlled by others. What I would say in the, and it's the way I, I postulate it in describing nidotherapy is that it, we're producing instrumental environmental change. We are actually changing people in a way which is to help the person. And we're deliberately doing that to make the change better for that person. And that's the policy behind nidotherapy. Peter, this conversation has just been absolutely illuminating in so many ways. And I'm just very grateful that you took the time today to talk to us. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word.